0: You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, today as we turn to John chapter 7, we are of course in a section in the Gospel of John where we're seeing Jesus opposed. In those first few chapters of John, we saw him presented, but in chapter 5, we definitely took a turn into a section of this gospel where there are those who are opposing Jesus and his ministry. Most notably, this began in the fifth chapter when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. And this bothered the religious leaders, especially when Jesus compared himself to God the Father and said, because he works on the Sabbath day, holding the universe together and such, so must I also work on the Sabbath day. This infuriated them, and so there was an undercurrent of hostility towards Jesus. In John chapter 6, the people began to turn away from him popularly. Not all of the people, but many of the people, because his teaching began to be more radical, and he was resisting their efforts to name him as their king. And so because of that, Uh, There is this undercurrent of animosity towards Jesus and resistance to him. Not that he isn't popular still. He's very popular, wildly popular. And as we'll see in the text today, many people are talking about him even at the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there's great interest in Jesus, but people are making their decisions. Is he someone worth following? Is he someone worth listening to? Is he someone worth Uh, Receiving or ought we to reject his ministry, his message, and his person? And so things were horribly unclear for people. They did not know what to make of Christ. And what I want to take you through here in John chapter 7, as Jesus responds to the crowds at the Feast of Tabernacles, is I want to take you through various elements that jesus declares about himself that if we understand these elements we will then be able to understand jesus more effectively if we don't understand these things then we'll be scratching our heads when it comes to jesus he will be confusing to us we just won't get him and so let's check these things out uh, today it says in verse 1 that after this jesus went about in galilee now This is probably a long stretch of time. There is at least six months or a year in between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Jesus spent nearly a year ministering in Galilee, and of course this is the portion of his ministry that the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, spend most of their time recounting. And so after a season of ministering in Galilee, it says that he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking To kill him. It's not, of course, that Jesus was afraid of death. He wasn't. He went to the cross. It's merely that his time had not yet come. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths, verse 2, was at hand. Now, the Feast of Booths was a wonderful time. This was a major festival in Israel, celebrated there in Jerusalem as well, and an incredibly happy festival. It did not carry a somber mood but a celebratory uh, mood Uh, people were excited about the feast of booths or the feast of tabernacles or the feast of lights it was a seven-day feast and it was a celebration of the harvest that God had given they would set up these tents or booths in order to commemorate the time when God had protected the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness And of course, many children would ask their parents, why are we spending the night in these booths? And it would give parents an opportunity and open door to teach their children about the faithfulness uh, and work of God in their past. Something which modern parents must do. We must teach our children the wonders of the word of God and of God's faithfulness to us in our own lives. So, verse 3, His brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so, his brothers come to him. Now, that's a detail of note for us, uh, because... Many have been taught that Mary was a virgin perpetually. Uh, However, after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph came together like any other normal married couple and had children, brothers and sisters. And so obviously all of them are younger than Jesus. And some of his brothers here begin to, in a taunting kind of way, Tell Jesus to go to the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem and publicly present himself to the people that are there. To gain a following. That's one thing to minister in the Galilee, they would say. But to gain a public following in the capital city, this is what the Messiah must do. His ministry must be public in Jerusalem. And this is ironic because there was indefinite truth in what they said, although not in the way that they meant it. Uh, They expected Jesus or wanted him to go and wave his hand and work some miracle and gain a huge following in Jerusalem. But of course we understand that Jesus' most major and significant work of ministry occurred on a Roman cross in the city of Jerusalem. And so he would do his greatest work in Jerusalem. And he would do the thing that garnered him the greatest amount of followers in Jerusalem through the cross of Christ. But that is not what his brothers had meant. Now, later on, at least some of his brothers will come to believe in him. At this point, they do not. But at some point, they will come to believe in him. In the book of Acts, they are there at the prayer meeting. I believe James and Jude. New Testament authors were the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. And so a change is going to take place, but not quite yet. For It says in verse 5, Not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In other words, you can go to the feast whenever you like. I'm governed by a thing called my time. When Jesus prayed in John 17, he said, Father, the hour has come. And so Jesus was very conscious of the will of the Father governing and over his life. But for his brothers, he says, you're free from these restrictions. The world, verse 7, cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, at least not in that public manner, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. Here's the first thing I wanted you to see as far as what we should understand about Jesus and how, as we understand these things, it helps us figure him out to a fuller degree. And it's simply this. You really aren't going to be able to make sense of Jesus unless you understand and know the mission of the cross. Take his brothers, for instance. Here are these men who obviously grew up with Jesus. They would had great experiences with Jesus. Jesus lived in sinless perfection in their midst, was a godly man in their midst. Yet, in the middle of all of that, the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him. You see, it's one thing to be nice. It's one thing to be kind. It's one thing to be good. But that in and of itself does not lead a person to belief. It is the message of the gospel, the cross of Christ. He had yet to die on the cross, and so his brothers had yet to have something to truly, really believe in. But secondly, take the world. Jesus says there in verse 7, he says, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Stand alone by itself, it would make sense. If Jesus is just some man coming into the world, And walking around and saying to the world, your works are evil, it would make all the sense in the world for the world to hate him. However, when the cross is understood and someone realizes that although, yes, he does declare my works to be evil, but on the other hand, he decided to go to a cross to pay for my sinful works and receive my penalty in his body, well, it sheds an entirely different light. Upon Jesus. And so, for the brothers of Christ and for the world itself, you cannot understand Jesus until you understand and know about the mission of the cross. And so, Jesus tells his brothers that he's not going to go up in that public sense that they desired. They left and he remained in Galilee. But, verse 10 after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Uh, This demonstrates to us that Jesus' chief concern was to be obedient to the Father. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Well, some said he is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews... No one spoke openly of him. And so what you have here is a little backdrop thing. There at the Feast of Booths, people are talking about Jesus. They, they're trying to figure him out. They're debating about him. And uh, you've got the Jews, the religious leaders, and you've got the people who are also Jews, but non-religious leaders. And there they are bickering and going back and forth, but everyone's afraid to really publicly make a declaration about Jesus for fear of the religious leaders. Now about the middle, verse 14, of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Like I said, Jesus is mostly concerned with obedience to the Father. It wasn't that he stayed in Galilee initially and didn't go to Jerusalem because privacy was the order of the day. No, it was simply that the father wanted him to be in privacy at that moment. But here, apparently, Jesus realizes the father now wants him to operate in a public sense. And so in the middle of the feast, he goes to the temple and begins teaching. And a wonderful thing. And the Jews, therefore, verse 15, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied now this is common in the teaching of jesus you might remember in matthew chapter 7 after teaching the sermon on the mount the people marveled because jesus spoke as one with authority not as the scribes who were always quoting others but one with authority and they were always making comments about jesus's teaching and here the the comment that's made is where does he get all this stuff He has not gone to any of our seminaries. He hasn't gone to any of our schools. Where has he gained this incredible learning he has never studied? Now, in those days, the options were twofold. On the one hand, you may have gone to one of the officially recognized and sanctioned schools in Israel. Or on the other hand, you would have been a self-taught individual. And Jesus wants to show them that his teaching does not come from one of their schools or from himself. It comes from God the Father. It says in verse 16 that Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. And Jesus explains to them, Listen, this isn't something that I've made up for from and for myself. This is another part of understanding Jesus. You have to know The origin of his teaching. Just as you can't understand him without the cross, you cannot understand his teaching if you think that he's simply from here and created this of his own genius. No, he received it from the Father. Now, this is different from the prophets. The prophets would say things like, thus saith the Lord. And they were, you know, responding to the leadership of God upon their lives, but Jesus was in line with and one with God. His teaching is straight from God. It is divine in nature. And I just say that for a moment because so many people, even professed believers and Christians, act as if Jesus' teaching is merely optional, as if it's not from God himself, as if maybe it will work for you, maybe it won't work for you. But no, His teaching is divine. It is for all who call upon his name. And so he says, It is not mine, it is his who sent me. In verse 17, he says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And so he basically explains something very powerful in verse 17. First of all, he says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the things I'm teaching are from God or not. This is a powerful statement concerning mankind, God's sovereignty, man's free will. He says, if a man wants to do what God desires, Then he will be able to see clearly. If a person is going to live as the Lord of their own lives, they will be blinded to the truth of Christ. But the second they desire to follow after God, they will begin to have their eyes open to see the truth of the gospel. But in the middle of this proclamation, Jesus says, Why are you trying to kill me? And the crowd answered, verse 20, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. There was one work that Jesus had done, which had led them to want to kill Jesus, and it was simply, as I'd mentioned earlier, Jesus' healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, because he healed him on the Sabbath day. Verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law Of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now, this is a powerful statement from Jesus and and very simple. They would have understood it. On the eighth day, a child, a male child, would be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Now, if you were born on a Friday, the eighth day would be Saturday, the Sabbath. And so you would be performing this ceremony on the Sabbath. The way they reconciled the two was that neither of them are breaking the Sabbath. Both of them are fulfilling the Sabbath. You observe the Sabbath and you circumcise this baby boy. And Jesus is saying, listen, if that rule applies for the circumcision of a child, don't you think that that rule should apply for the healing of a man? And so uh, Jesus pins them a little bit and says, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. They they needed to get their head out of the sand a little bit. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said in verse 35, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. This had become sort of the accepted thought of many that they would not know the origin of the Christ when he appeared. And of course, this is again ironic because they think they know that he is from Nazareth when in fact he is from Bethlehem. And even if they had known he was from Bethlehem and thought that he was from there, the reality is that he was from heaven. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple he said, you know me, and you know where I come from. A little bit of a challenge there. But I have not come of my own accord, and he who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Again, another thing to understanding who Jesus is, it's to understand the origin of, of his life. Jesus said, I know him, the Father, for I come from him, the Father, and he, the Father, sent me. Get to know the origin of Jesus' life. To realize where he's come from. To realize his his goal and to realize what it is that he is doing. I think so often one of the complaints that mankind has against God is watching the evil and the horror and the atrocity that is experienced in this world. It's typical in anything Hollywood produces, not that it's all bad. But it's typical in much of what is produced to have a church scene where someone is facing some kind of trial or difficulty and they go and they sit in a church building during the week and wonder why, 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 why. And they cry out. The priest or pastor asks if they can pray with them and the person says, what's the use? And the implication, of course, is where was God in all of this? Why wasn't he moving? Well, when you understand that Jesus has come from God, You understand that God has moved. God decided not to simply eliminate all of our evil, not to eliminate the consequences of our sin. That would have been unfaithful to his promise, unfaithful to his word and unfaithful to our free will. But instead, he chose to experience all of that wrath and evil and and horribleness, if I could say it that way, in his own body on the cross of Calvary. You only understand this if you understand that Jesus came from God. So, verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd. They heard this popularity beginning to brew muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. It's always interesting to me to see the divine and sovereign hand of God upon Jesus' life when they wanted to harm him or arrest him. When his hour had not yet come, they just couldn't do it. There was something that held them back from it. And then Jesus declares to them, he says, look, a day is coming where you will look for me, but you will not find me. And this he was speaking of his ascension. And so to understand Christ, you need to understand that he is the only one who is able to ascend to God based on his own works. He is perfect in every way. The Jews said to one another, verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I And where I am, you cannot come. And so they assume that Jesus was saying that he would go to the Gentiles to teach and preach. And they're confused by his sayings about his ascension. Now, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here Jesus speaks about the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this is wonderful in the sense of when this all occurred. It says there in verse 37 that this happened on the last day of the feast. Now, every day of the feast, they would, in the morning time, a priestly procession would go to the pool of Siloam and fill up a basin, a golden basin of water. They would take this water back into the temple and they would blast these celebratory trumpets. A a priestly choir would begin to sing. And they would take the water and pour it out as an offering before the Lord. The the men who were there, the pilgrim men, would hold twigs in their right hand and fruit in their left hand, symbolizing the provision of God and protection of God upon their lives. And they would shake it three times and say, Give thanks to the Lord. And they would offer this water to God. And it was a way for them to remember And to declare, God gave us water from the rock to drink out there in the wilderness. And and in that moment, Jesus then stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is making a bold claim to be the rock from which the water flows now of course here he's speaking wonderfully and beautifully about the holy spirit of god that as we have a relationship with jesus we then receive a relationship with the holy spirit of god uh, the holy spirit not not an it or a presence or a force but a person a personality he possesses intelligence and a will And emotion. He receives personal pronouns in Scripture and he longs for a personal relationship with you and with me, and he longs to gush forth from our lives. And when we fellowship with God and spend time in his presence and spend time cultivating our relationship with him through worship and the receiving of his word, through prayer, fellowship with others, the Spirit of God is stirred and he begins to gush forth from our lives in such a wonderful way. And to understand Jesus, you need to understand that he is the source of that living and wonderful and abundant water. But an amazing claim uh, from Jesus, and of course this passage reminds us even today, of the desire of God to have a wonderful relationship with us where he is bursting forth from our lives. Now, of course, the ingredients to receive that are thirst and going to Jesus and believing in him. Now, verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet that Moses, of course, back in the Old Testament had prophesied of. Others said, verse 41, this is the Christ, the Messiah. Some said, is the Christ to come? From Galilee, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now they're going back into the prophecies in Micah and uh, elsewhere in the Old Testament concerning David. And they're saying, hey, hold on a second. He's got to be from Bethlehem and of the offspring of David. Not recognizing, obviously, that Jesus had been, A, born in Bethlehem, and that he was, B, a relative of David, both through Mary and through Joseph. So there was, verse 43, a division among the people over him, and some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came, verse 45, to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man, he, he has boldness. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? And then they express their total hubris. They say in verse 48, Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Total pride. But Nicodemus, verse 50, Who had gone to him before, John 3, And who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And they each went to his own house. And so I love the progression in Nicodemus's life. John 3, he inquires of Christ. John 7, here he slightly, and in one sense, defends Christ. And at the end of the book, we'll see him burying Jesus in the 19th chapter. A full-on disciple. But remember... You've got to understand these elements from John 7 in order to understand Jesus correctly. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.